Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, welcome to In The Pink, the podcast with me, Natalie Pinkham where I speak to an eclectic mix of interesting and successful people to find out what really makes them tick. Now, my guest this week is Sir Clive Woodward. Now, if I was to ask you what you know about Clive Woodward, you'd probably say, well, he's that bloke that coached the Rugby World Cup winning side of 2003. And you'd be right. But that is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this accomplished man, because he's also worked with and for sailing, the Olympics, football and Formula One. His family are the centre of his world, and yet his own childhood was pretty tricky, something that he's never been able to forgive his parents for. Hear his thoughts on the Football World Cup, Eddie Jones and the Tour of South Africa, and why a full-time job offer from Ron Dennis was just a whisker away from becoming a reality. Ladies and gentlemen, Sir Clive Woodward, as you've never heard him before. I'm going to level with the listeners who don't already know, but this is our take two. <laughs> and the reason it's our take two is because I'm a newbie to this and I clearly hadn't got quite a grasp of the technology, but you being the lovely man that you are, let me come back. So thank you for that. Never in doubt. <laughs> I mean, actually, I see this as an opportunity because you made some really interesting points the first time round. <laughs> you won't remember what any of them are. <laughs> I always thought the technology looked a bit, um, a bit complex for you, Natalie. So anyway, I'm glad to see you again. Uh, but I also think it's an opportunity for us to sort of develop some of the points that we talked about first time okay, around, um, if we can remember any of them. Yeah. Um, but if I may uh, just get you to cast your mind back and start at the beginning, because I think what a lot of people are interested to know is kind of what makes you who you are and what makes you tick. And a lot of that does come from childhood. So, so what was your childhood like? Well, my childhood was, uh, I've got happy memories of my childhood. I came from a service uh, family. My, my dad was a, a pilot in the, in the Air Force, which meant we kind of moved around um, various Air Force bases, mainly in the UK. Um, and probably the, the, the best and the happiest time was a place called Aria Flinton on Ouse, which is just outside York. Um, that was my first school. I went to Easingwell Grammar School. Um, and that's where I really started playing football, soccer. Yes, seriously. So I remember as a sort of a child being on an Air Force base, you know, that was very different from today's kind of childhood. It was all totally sort of uh, secure. And, you just, and I just played football all the time. I went to Easingwell Grammar School and had a, had a great time. And football being your first love, you, you preferred to play that over rugby? Well, yeah, I never played rugby until I was 14. I mean, I was, uh, I was just brought up on football. I can clearly remember now in, you know, 
1966 I was 10 years old watching the, the World Cup final with, with my dad you know and then I can clearly remember even all those years ago a 10 year old going out on the streets and everyone just came out of the house screaming and shouting when you know England won the World Cup and Bobby Moore lifting the trophy and Jeff Hurst hat track I can name the England team today that, that played that day so yeah football was my absolute passion my absolute love and I was you know I was a good, good player and I can say that I think modestly I, I was I loved it I was you know my whole life was going to be playing Football, that was basically what I had, all my dreams were about football. So, so you actually wanted and expected to play professional football? Well, at that stage, I was, I mean, I was, I was, I was like 12, 13, I'm playing for Yorkshire under-15s, I'm getting picked way above my age group, you know. We already had scouts from, uh, it was from Leeds, um, coming to the school to talk to the headmaster, and that's where it all kind of either went badly wrong or badly right for me, because um, the, the headmaster... Um, literally went to see my dad one one evening and, and said, you know, we've got real problems with your child because you know he's he's uh, I say problems. He said, yeah, academically he could go to university and even even those days going to university was something you didn't do. That was just for other people. University was this real, it's a higher echelon. And he basically said to my dad, your 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 child's bright enough to go to university, but all he does is play football. And I was all he did was play football. He said he's not working at school, all this stuff. So. So to go a long story short, my dad decided to take me away from football and send me away to this uh, boarding school. Uh, because he's in the services, he was, a, he was a, a, a pilot, he could send me to any military boarding school and the Air Force, Air Force paid for it. So I went to this place called HMS Conway. So at 13, I'm kind of taken away from Easingwell Grammar School, which I loved, where my dad was based, to end up at this place called HMS Conway, which is this Merchant Navy boarding school on Anglesey in North Wales. So I was literally sent there at 13, you know, and they they played three sports: uh, rugby, rugby, and rugby. You, there was no other sport there. That was their whole passion. They absolutely hated football. Football was something that if you were seen with a football, it was going to cause massive problems. And so I'm suddenly went from being totally to play this game of rugby, which I'd never even seen a rugby ball in my life before. So suddenly I'm at school at 13, boarding school, tough. Can I imagine it, boys, merchant navy boarding school, where you didn't send your kids there if they're good at sport. You went there because they're going to go in the Merchant Navy. And that was the last thing that suited my kind of sporting ability and my and my kind of background. So it was one of those crazy decisions that, and I kind of really, even at an early age, really kind of never made it up with my parents ever after that because it, it, and there was lots of stuff went on, but didn't like the school very much, ran away various times, but just kept getting sent back and sent back and ended up being there from 13 to 18. And ended up playing rugby because there was nothing else to do because I kept getting sent back to school. That was kind of heartbreaking though because you were effectively being punished for your passion. Well, it was just a case of, uh, I, I guess I can see it, you know, because how things have turned out, you end up going to university, you end up playing for England, you end up coaching England and doing all this stuff. So my parents, if they're both dead now, but if they're both alive, they'd sit here and say, well, we were right, look what happened. But deep down, I'm going, no, you weren't right, because you never know what was what was right and wrong. But I think to take something away from somebody, um, they're doing it for the right reasons. My, my dad in those days, he, he just could not see, um, he had no even ambition for me to be a professional footballer. He didn't see that was part of the offer. People people from our kind of family didn't go into being professional footballers, but I was good. I was def- definitely better at playing football than I was at playing rugby. And um, you know, that's what happened. That's when I got into rugby, as simple as that. Well, given that you got 21 caps in rugby, just think how many you could have got in football. Well, it's just one of the games. That's why I love football. I've got, you know, you look back, can you kind of eventually move on? But, you know, I, you know people, you know, I went into football, I had one year in football after I left the England job. 
but I generally do love football and I love everything about it and it, it's amazing when you speak to rugby people they, they talk about diving and it's a soft game it's not a soft game football is a tough tough game you know I love people like Graham Souness and Roy Keane and these you know Nicky Butt and these sort of players I kind of really relate to I think you know these are tough guys if they were rugby players they'd be superb but in football you know they're just no nonsense players but football's a tough tough game it's a very tough professional sport and I don't think anyone from the rugby world I was lucky enough to work in it for, for a while and you just it's everything I, I knew it would be I loved it it was fantastic and it was a very competitive sport and it's a tough tough sport make, make no bones about that you're going to have to explain who that is for the listeners. That's uh, Sally, my dog, who's just seen some food on the table. So we've got Sally and we've got Ronnie Barker, the Norfolk Terrier, sitting next to us. So I think we're about to get some noise in the background. <laughs> Sally looks like she wants a bit of the cheese on the table. The cheese. If we give her any, there'll be non-stop barking. So we've got to not give her any food okay. at the table. Okay. I normally would, but I know she'll just come, come crazy if I do. So, so how much of your sort of footballing talent do you think you, you took into your style of playing rugby and... And really kind of, in a way, they're the players that have always caught your eyes through, over the years that had that kind of footballing talent. I, it's always, it always, I'd always spotted that the, and I probably first saw on the, on the Lions tour and playing for England that some of the best players are great football players. I remember John, uh, John Rutherford from Scottish Fly Half. You, know, these are, you can see they're good football players. And it was funny, when I went to a r- rugby session, suddenly we played football in warm-ups. Everyone was playing football. You know, I just thought it was quite ironic because I think football is a great game mm. for any sport. doesn't matter what sport you do, whether you're a skier or a golfer. If you can run around with the football at your feet, you're going to have great balance, great skills. It is a fantastic sport. That's why it's the world's best sport because it's simple, straightforward, but it's incredibly skillful. So I think <laughs> football can be transferred <laughs> over. No, Sally, no. We've got to stop that, no. Football skills can be transferred uh, over... This will be the first we've got backgrounds. <laughs> the skills in football can be transferred over now. And I, 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 you know, the more I kind of develop what I'm doing now, I just think, you know, you, you want kids who are kind of multi-talented. And I think the time to really specialise is like 15, 16. Up to then, you should, yeah, you should be playing football, but play other sports as well. If you're a golfer, you know, play other sports as well. I think the, 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 getting multi-skilled, multi-talented is really important if you're going to go right to the top of whatever sport you eventually go into. And how has your relationship and the decision that your parents made um, affected your relationship, say, with your kids? You, you seem to be a real family man. Um, I only think of it in terms of my parents because both my parents had sort of fairly tricky relationships with their parents. But as a result, they're much, much closer to us, yeah. me and my brother Sam. I think, um, I mean, I want to say... You know, I never fell out. I was never close to my parents after that. I became very independent. There's no doubt about that. I was still, you know, close to them in terms of used to you know, see them and see them at Christmas and all that sort of stuff. But it was, I never had a really close relationship because of what happened when I was 13. All yeah. because of that decision? Oh, to be sent away to, I can't tell you how horrible this school was. I don't even want to go down that, that line. It was, a, it was a Merchant Navy boarding school. <laughs> 13 years old, you just packed off to school in, on Anglesey in North Wales. And it, was, it wasn't something, you know, and I ended up playing rugby, but it was just, you know, I, I don't look back at my school days with any fondness at all. I, you know, it's really strange because I've obviously, you know, gone on to do various things, but, you know, they have old boys meetings and clubs. I've never been to one of them. Really? You know, I meet these guys and I just go, guys, remember, we hated that school. Why are, we, why are you having reunions, all this stuff? So I've never gone to a reunion yeah. ever for the whole thing. So, so yeah, you, so you have, have this kind of breakdown, not breakdown, you kind of... Sally. Sally, no, no. 
She's just like a player. I've got absolutely no control over this. <laughs> She's looking at you with utter disdain utter right disdain now. Because you've got this food on the table. Yeah. What were we talking about then? Sorry. It was quite poignant, actually, because um, I think it's, it's, it's really interesting that all those sort of slightly negative memories that you obviously had at school are tied up with rugby, and yet that is the... the that's been your vehicle for huge success in your life and huge happiness, but there's a sort of irony to that, isn't there? Yeah, I think once, once I got into it, because also what we suddenly realised when you'd missed, when you, when you go from 13 to 14, 15, then my, my father moved, um, we moved away, that just didn't help either. I, just literally after I went to school, we moved away from Linton on Ouse. He got posted down to um, uh, RAF Bryce Norton, which is in Oxfordshire, so not too far from here. So suddenly... When I came home in the holidays, I didn't know anybody. I'm on this Air Force base, middle of nobody. I didn't know any of the kids. Didn't know any of the school kids because I've moved away from school. So even the holidays became this really horrible place because you're just trying to make friends with kids on a on a base. Um, and so you just lose all the you lose to play football. You got to be playing football every day. You have got to be playing all the time. And mm. you know if you really want to get to the top, you can't have a two or three year off when you're 13, 14, 15. So I just started playing rugby and became good at rugby, and that became you know, I'm going to do this because I was good at it. So I started to, you know, play for the school. I was captain of the school and all this sort of stuff. And then, um, and the, the school was so useless, my school. They never sent boys to rugby trials. I didn't do any any rugby uh, trials. And then eventually when I was 18, in the upper six, it shut down, uh, which was probably the best thing could happen to it. It was, it was, it was closed. And that final year, they let me go to a rugby trial. And I went to all the Welsh schoolboy trials. So in my last year, because I school in Wales, or I'm English as they can be, I went to the Welsh schoolboy trials. And then I didn't get picked by the Welsh schoolboys because there was absolutely, the, the, the guy from North Wales who took me down, it was quite a funny story, he's so Welsh, this guy. He was saying, you're going to be in the Welsh schoolboy teams, you're the best player. Played this trial, thought I played really well. Wasn't even picked in the squad because one, I was from North Wales, I think, and two, most important, I was English. And so I'm not picked. <laughs> And the guys playing against me was, was Terry Holmes and Gareth Davis, these kind of players who went on to play for England, Wales. And, 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 I'm, and I, I'm sure I was a better player than them, but I didn't get into, these, into the Welsh schoolboy team. And um, then a year later, I'm now playing, I've left school, I'm playing for England Colts against the Welsh youth team. And most of the Welsh schoolboy team, including Gareth Davis and Terry Holmes, including Gareth Davis and Terry Holmes are all in, in this team. And I'm now playing for England against them. And we won. We won. And this schoolmaster came all the way from North Wales. And he was literally pointing at the Welsh selectors. I told you. I told you. Really? I told you. Oh so we go back. So it was, all, it was all good. It was all very competitive. But, you know, selection in rugby was just a very strange thing. If you're in North Wales trying to get into Welsh schoolboy team. But my, my school never sent anyone to trials. It was crazy. Um, so, you know, looking back at the school days, to sum it up, it's not... I, I, he's kind of moved on. But to go back to the previous question, when we, you know... Obviously married to Jane, got three three great kids. I was determined to a fault, you know. We, we, I'm gonna I'm gonna not let these kids down. I'm gonna get very close to them, and you know, and hopefully, hopefully, it's, it's that's happened, and we are a pretty close family. But that was definitely based on you know, pretty falling out with my parents at a very early age. And uh, I mean, they say everyone is as they are for a reason. I guess, as you say, that the positives that came out of it were that you, you're a very committed father and husband, but also. Um, very independent and that clearly spurred you on not just in sport but also in business I was really independent even you know um, I was going to go after school I was going to go to Durham University which is another story uh, to do law um, and I forget the grades but they, I, I needed something like ABC to get to 
to get to Durham University to do law, which I decided to do. I don't know why I was going to do it, but I decided to do it. Um, I got some like BBC. I missed it by one grade. Mm. So I assumed they'd let me in. And I got rejected. I wasn't, couldn't, couldn't go. So they, they, turned me, they turned me down. So I then have decided I need a job. I had to get away from my, my parents' home in uh, Bryce Norton. So I got a job in NatWest Bank. So I applied for this job. And it's literally the advert was all about, you know, if you've not got your grades A-levels, join NatWest <laughs> Bank. Not. Fear not. So next thing, I've gone for an interview in NatWest Bank and I'm working in a bank in Richmond. And that's when I literally walked into Harlequin's football club. Um, the bank put me up for three months in a sort of bed and breakfast somewhere. And I'm totally independent. I didn't know anyone in London. I just left home. to working in a bank. Um, and then lucky enough, um, I went down to Harlequin's. I literally walked in. No one's ever heard of me. Because I didn't go to any try. You know, I, didn't, I walked in. So I started playing for the fifth team. And everyone was going, where's, where's this guy come from? And within about three or four weeks, I'm, I'm playing in the first team at Harlequin's. I just went straight into the first team at 18 years old. Living and and then I'm keeping out on some other players' floor because I know where to sleep or stay. So I'm dossing around Richmond somewhere, staying on people's floor. But it just made you very in, very independent in a, in a in a in a in a great way. But the best story about it is within about six months. Sorry, you know, with, I'm playing Harlequin's first team. Literally within weeks, you know, I, even even I was surprised. I'm now playing at Twickenham because Harlequin's used to play at Twickenham. I'm playing. We played against Cardiff. I was playing against Gareth Edwards. He was, in the, he was playing for Cardiff at Scrum Half. He was like this legend from Wales. I'm playing for, for England. But then this is, I promise you, this is probably either the best part of my personality or the worst part. I then get it. One of the players at Harlequins was a Durham University guy. And he was, you know, I think his name was Gordon Wood. He was on the wing. And I think he played for England under 23s. But he, he went back to university and said, you know, got to get this. Gotta That's get Ronnie this. now. That's Ronnie. That's Ronnie. This is... Ronnie, Ronnie and Sally are out. They've made the great escape. They've finally been listened to. So I get this, I get this letter. Um, so Gordon Wood goes back to Durham University and goes to see all the powers that be. You know, should get this guy to Durham University he wants to come. So I get this letter from Durham University going, um, you know, because now I'm playing for Harlequins. I was playing for England, England Colts and England under-23s. So I get this letter from the Vice-Chancellor of Durham University saying, we've reviewed your application. We'd like to now offer you a place. I promise you, I just wrote back saying, I wouldn't come to your university really? if it was the last university in the world. You know, I thought it was just something totally and utterly wrong mm. about, I'm not, I'm not selected one, one year, but now I'm playing rugby and playing at a good standard and they now want you to come to university. So I turned them down. Mm. Again, my, my dad went nuts with me. He went he was crazy with me because I just didn't go. So that's why I ended up going to Loughborough University to do sports science, which again, history would say was the best thing I ever did because Loughborough was fantastic with... Great rugby coach there called Jim Greenwood, who's probably along with Chalky yeah. White the best coach I've ever, ever had. So we had a Loughborough. Jim Greenwood really teaches me a huge amount about rugby, which I didn't know, and it just happened to be. But I've you know I've always laughed when I get led from Durham University saying you can you can come to university now, and I just stuck two fingers up to them and said I wouldn't over, principle. over my dead body when I go to your university. What I want to know is because um, you describe yourself as as a player as effective. But the next game, the very next game, in fact, disastrously vacant and haphazard. I didn't describe myself as that. You wrote that in your book. Never, never. You did. <laughs> I didn't write my. I didn't write my books. Oh, oh <laughs> Don't admit that now. Um, but but you've always been a, a risk taker. Again, you say this. Um, oh, in terms of that, yeah. In terms of player, I pride myself yeah. on being, you know, a flair player. I, I you know. Um, I think Jim Greenwood was great at Loughborough University because he kept saying to us, guys, we're amateurs, you know, we're going we're to try and really enjoy it. We're going to play the game different from anybody else. And at, at Loughborough University, we did. It was fantastic. 
And then when I went to Leicester Tigers and the Chalky White, they had a similar kind of approach to the game. Mm. We were amateurs. Mm. You know, we had to go, we, we wanted to enjoy this and we're all going to work Monday morning. So mm. yeah, that's the way I played the game. And I was, I like to think, one of the true, you know, great amateurs because I wanted to be an amateur player. Mm. But if we're going to be amateur, we're going to go and really, really enjoy the game on Saturday because, you know, I'm not getting paid to do this. So we've got to enjoy it. And yeah. I've never kind of lost that kind of spirit of how I, how I played. So what I want to know is, is, is risk-taking um, an instinctive thing or a deliberate premeditated thing, do you feel? I don't think I'm a risk-taker. I'm, I'm, on, on the pitch? Yeah, I would... I would, I would it's, it's calculated risk. Just got to get Sally back in. Sally. You're not helping this at all, so. <laughs> Okay, Sally's back in now. Sally's back in. For She's those... Yeah, yeah, those worried. She's um, still looking pretty perplexed. Concerned that the food isn't in her mouth. And I think the, the, table. Risk, the risk taking in in a, in a team going like rugby definitely comes from the coach. I mean, in terms of the, the coach will install that in you right. that he wants to see you play this way. Jim Greenwood was awesome at that. Chalky White was awesome at that. They, you know, and I think that's what I wanted to do. I wanted the team to play in a certain way, and we and we did. I'd like to think, and I think the team, the way a team plays, does reflect the kind of personality and the way the coach wants you to play. I don't think you go out and take risks unless that's been installed into you and. You know, you're only taking risks if you think it's going to pay off and you're going to you know, do something that's going to help you win the game of rugby, I guess. It's exciting to watch, especially for the fans. I mean, I guess you could say that about the French over the years, kind of mercurial side, that when it works, it's it's just gorgeous running rugby to watch. But when it doesn't, it's a bit disastrous. What's... Yeah, but I think the England team that I was lucky enough to coach, because you, you're kind of the England rugby team, you're kind of almost stuck in this time war where everyone thinks what's well, the England rugby team they're going to be tough, physical, kick penalties, drop goals. We scored so many tries. The mm. team that I was lucky enough to coach, you look at the, 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 the even the back row alone, you know, if you look at Delalio, Hill and back, I mean, they're just three sevens players. They're the fastest players. You then add in, in the back line, you know, Jason Robinson and, you know, these sort of types of players. We're an amazing team. And we scored, so you look, just look at the number of wins, the number of tries we scored. This was not a typical England team. Mm. And that, hopefully reflected me as a coach and how I wanted to play the game and you know I was looking to play for England 21 times but I didn't play for a coach who was anywhere like my kind of mindset the way to play the game you kind of look back at your playing career with not, not regrets because you, you're glad you played for England and played 21 times you want to win a grand slam but I, I just you know there's no game I'd show my kids that lives me playing because there's no game that I was you know really go, wow that was a great game of rugby that I was involved in it just didn't really happen uh, whereas I like to think the, the team I coached there were some amazing games, some amazing games that we, that we played in. And I like to think all the players who played under me would say, you know, it was an exciting time to play in the team. Mm. We, we kind of went on the pitch with a lot of adrenaline flowing, going, wow, we're going to really play here and they're going to have to play well to, to stop this team. So the history books will say that, that you are a better coach than a player. And that does seem to be the case of a lot of the great coaches globally, particularly in football, you know, talking about the likes of Mourinho, uh, Wenger, Ferguson. Why do you think that is? I'm not. I'm not I don't think there's any any magic to that. I, I think you, you know. I, you know, I, I played a time where it was a very. I played an amateur era, so I'd you know, I'd have loved to play. I'd love to play professional rugby. That's why I, I could eyeball any England rugby player coach and sort of say, you know, just you know, almost button it because you, you know how lucky you are. It, yeah. yeah, just guys, just just so this will go vast very quickly. And now I know them all. Probably even better now after we've all kind of moved on. 
And it does go by hugely quickly. And I say to any rugby player, just enjoy every minute of it and don't leave anything mm. to chance. Just get involved and get stuck in because this will go around like that. Like that. So that was, I was able to do that because I played for England 21 times, which is in by today's standard not many, but that was like five years. Because yeah. no games, we played about five games a year. We didn't have, you know, 20, 30 caps a year. So I, I didn't, I was playing for the team for four or five years. And, you know, I loved it. It was fantastic. And we, we had a ball. But we never really sat down and said, right, we're going to take the world on here. We're going to really, because as an amateur, we, mm. there was no reason why anybody could because we all had jobs to do. Whereas the moment the game went professional, that's when it was just fantastic. And that's why I was lucky to be the first professional coach because I was going, okay, got to put up or shut up now. You know, he's been, been moaning so long about, you know, in your day, you didn't play that way. Well, we got a chance now. So that's what kind of drove me on my kind of, my own experiences of, of playing for England. But why do you think it is then that, that, you know, coaches like Mourinho could come sort of really quietly under the radar? I'm thinking of his time at Barcelona as translator. Yeah, for exactly. It's just, it's just lovely when you've mentioned a couple of times, sort of passion. It doesn't matter what you do, whether you're, you're running a business, you're running a doctor's surgery or veterinary surgery, you're coaching a football team. If you're passionate about it, you'll yeah. do it well. You'll do it well. And so you don't need to be a good player to be a good no, coach. But no. what about the what about some of the great players no. that could be great coaches? And we haven't really seen it yet. And I'm thinking about the likes of Stephen Gerrard at Rangers and Frank Lampard at Derby County. How do you think that's going to play out? Do you do you think they've I do you think they're transferable skills to, I, from a player I, to a coach? I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I just think it. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm not a whatever the word is. I'm happy to have any nationality coach, but I'm, you know, I'm English. I love seeing English coaches come through. So I think um, you know Gerard Lampard. You know, these are big decisions they've made because they could certainly go the rest of their life be the TV pundits and have a nice lifestyle. To go and take the plunge, to go into Rangers, go to Derby. These are big clubs. They're both big clubs for both those guys to, to put it all on the line. Now, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I guess to answer your question is, if you've got the passion for it, would it help if you're a player? Yes, definitely, definitely. Is it a prerequisite? No. You know, hence Mourinho, Wenger. Mm. Um, but if you, you know, Zidane is the opposite. You know, Zidane, who I think is amazing, you know, what he's done at uh, Madrid. Um, if you, if you've got that aura about you. I think there's a big, big advantage. And I, I personally think uh, me playing for England, playing for the Lions, that helped me hugely because, I, I, as I said before, I could eyeball the players and go, come on, guys, we can, you know, this will go very quickly. Um, was it a prerequisite? No. If you've got this passion for it, no matter what you do, if you've got a passion for it, if it's what you actually you know, live for every day, you'll, you'll, do it, you'll do it well. Absolutely mm. do it well. So you don't need to be a great player. Does it help? Doesn't doesn't hurt, for sure, especially if you're a really great like Gerard. Yeah, and Lampard, both complete legends, Zidane. I think it helps helps a lot, but it's, it's not. Yeah, I can understand why someone like Mourinho does well. But Mourinho, you know, I remember as kind of a big Chelsea fan. You know, I think Mourinho, Wenger, if they were running the NHS, they'd run it well. They'd do it really, really Let's well. Get them in. Well, honestly, we need it. They'd be passionate about it. If, if, but you, you can only do it if that's where you can transfer between sports. But you've got to mm. be passionate about it. If mm. you're not got that absolute passion it won't work mm. but if you're totally and utterly passionate about whatever you're going to do you and the media if you're, you'll do it really well you'll, mm. you'll do it well if you haven't got that you, you're going to come second at best how much of a, a, a good coach is a good teacher I mean how much um, do you need to be able to to teach and, and coach the best at and identify what that the best is in those players yeah good question so I think going back to your question about sometimes top players don't make it mm. I, th I think because for, for, for whatever reason they've not learned to teach and teaching 
is about communicating. Um, I'm a qualified teacher, hence again, I was lucky I went to Loughborough, did a degree in sports science, did a whole year doing a, um, whatever it's called, um, uh, BSC, what's oh, it? Yeah, teacher yeah. training, whatever it's called. Anyway, I did a whole year teacher training. Yeah. So I'm a fully qualified teacher. And so it teaches you how to communicate. If you, mm. and, and, and you probably know, if, to go and for six months teach a bunch of 12, 13 year olds every single day is a tough thing to do. Teaching is not easy. Teaching is something you can learn, you can, you can be taught how to do it. And I think these are the key skills. So a top player, you know, Gerard Lampard, they've got the football knowledge, they've mm. got this knowledge. They and they've got the passion. Now they've got to learn how to teach it, how to communicate it to to the players, and that is not an instinctive thing. You've got to learn how to do that. Hopefully, that's why they do all these uh, football badges, um, uh, certificate of education. That's what oh, I'm trying to go. think of. You do your cert ed. I did my year cert ed after my degree, so I'm a fully qualified teacher. So it's almost like saying every football player should do a cert ed. You should do a year learning how to teach it, and I think that's what the you know the or the UEFA badges uh, do. I mean, I've done all the UEFA badges. I'm, I did all my football badges. I've not got a single qualification to coach rugby, but I'm a fully qualified UEFA coach uh, because I did all that in my, in my year. But it's, it's how you teach it. Yeah. So they've got, they've got the knowledge of football. Can they teach it? Can they communicate it? Then the third big skill is, you know, you are a business person. You are buying, selling, buying and selling players. Having to do with some of these agents, which, I, again, I saw this first down at Southampton. It was, it was just... It was just amazing what I saw in football. I just sat in somebody's room shaking my head at some of the people you end up speaking to, football agents and players and some of the stuff that goes on. So you've got to understand that side of the business really, really well mm. and, and how that actually operates. And I think they do. And I, I particularly, I love Stephen Gerrard. I love Lampard. I hope, I hope John Terry goes and does the same thing. You know, once he finishes, stops playing. I think Terry will be, you know, could be a great, a great coach, a great manager. So I just think they're great to do it because make no bones about it doesn't matter how good a player they've been, they're now moving into a different world. The media, being the media, is going to be all over them. Mm. And I just think it's fantastic. So well done to all, all, to all two of them. Hopefully Terry does the same thing as well. Yeah. Gary Neville's story proved it's certainly not easy. It's not easy. It's, 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 it's not easy. And that's why I admire all these people doing these top jobs, especially in football, because you know, it, was, it was another level from rugby, to be brutally honest. It's mm. what I saw when I was at Southampton. Just the, the fans, the local media, the pressure is just unbelievable. Mm. And you're doing it week in, week out. So these managers who survive, you know, Harry Redknapps and these guys, just got massive admiration for them because it's tough. Mm. Make no bones about it, it's tough. It's mm. not a normal job. And the pressure from the fans is just it's, it's amazing, especially when it's not going well. Mm. You know, to, to be able to stand there and cop it, which they do, just getting out your cargo in the car park, you you're running this gauntlet of just abuse. I mean, it's just, this, you know, if it's not going well. Particularly in the era of social media, you're oh, just so exposed now, aren't you? It's gone to a different level completely from, from yeah. even when I coached. The, the, the social media side of things really has taken it off. So you know, I just admire these guys hugely. And, you know, I think we all do secretly against. We love it. The football, we're about to come to a Football World Cup, you know, it's just going to be amazing. There's going to mm. be people whose careers are made forever and people whose you know, careers are going to be ruined by the next mm. few weeks. It's funny that you talk about passion because I... I would assume that there's some argument to say that to be slightly detached from it as a coach, to be able to compartmentalise slightly and treat it more like a business may be beneficial, may be helpful. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about in terms of national coaches who are just so passionate and it is their own country that they're coaching that maybe just a slight element of detachment would be useful if you're not perhaps from the country that you're coaching. I think... Um not really. I guess no. my answer to that is I, I think there's no right or wrong. I think every 
and that's why football management football playing is great because every personality is different you know and some people do it one way the, you, the most important you got to do it your way and what what fits for you all, all I would say and I still think now probably think I think like a player the players will know you know the players will know is this guy the real deal or is he not and they will never know. And if mm. he's the real deal, you have this you know, it's lovely saying about losing the change room. You can. Mm. You can lose the change room. But it's mainly based on the fact that they probably think you're not quite up to it or you've taken some shortcuts or you're not delivering mm. or you're not really throwing the kitchen sink at it. And they, they, will, they will know. Mm. And I think it gets even more challenging then when you have, uh, say, a football changing room, uh, a club changing room. We've got different nationalities, different cultures, mm. because... When you're coaching an England football team or coaching a rugby team, it's probably pretty straightforward. The kind of culture you're trying to create, you'll understand that, especially if you've played. Gareth Southgate will understand this now because he's a player. Um, so I think, uh, by the way, I think he's only doing a great job mm. and I think he's got a real chance of being a big success with this. Um, so come on, go on, say it. Can we win the World Cup? We can definitely win the World Cup. Football more than rugby because, y- y- you know upsets happen more in football than rugby you don't get many big t- you know, surprises in rugby in football you, you, you kind of do and if we get ourselves organised I mean I, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeless at this I, I always think England are going to win at rugby I always think we're going to win at football my whole DNA is based on you know, 1966 I always think England are going to win and I look at the team now and I look at it and you look at every player in the, in the team they're all playing in the premiership they're all playing for great teams and playing for the United and the City and I said, wow, if they could just go out and really believe this, so they can they can win. They, you win games 1-0. Mm. It can happen. So, you know, you go in full of optimism. Obviously, the, you know, the, the bookmakers wouldn't back up those thoughts. But you just I think World Cup's a great time. So every four years, you know, I, I put every fixture in my diary. I know when they're happening, when I'm getting home on time to watch these games. I just think it's a fantastic time. And just really, you know, not envy, but I feel very, what's the word, um, just you look at South going wow what an amazing thing to do in your life yeah. whatever happens to him he's going to go wow I did it yeah. and, you, and you feel very uh, very lucky to have done it yourself and also very what's the, what's the right word not envious um, you just sort of say you admire him for doing yeah. it you know, and you go wow you know it'd be something you'd love to do if you had the, the, the skills to do it um, just as a sort of uh, a side issue and I know that people are very sick of discussing and debating this but I am interested in your opinion of um Raheem Sterling and his and his tattoo and and the the pressure that's put on these footballers to be role models, and also the pressure on people like Gareth Southgate to micromanage them. In your view, um, well, first of all, what do you think of the tattoo? And do you think that um, Southgate has got to take more control of his players, or do you think that it's no one's business what you put on your body? No, I think England are in a good shape, and I think Southgate's done a great job. I really, I really do. I, I really think he's he's really come in. He's been he's been strong. He's been firm. And as as for Sterling, all, all I'd say is that he did it for a reason, and I think that's a very personal reason. I'm only reading what I've been impressed about is his, his dad and the reason for it. And you you've got to go, you know, what you do with your own body is entirely up to you, especially if there's a you know a um, a, a positive reason in his own mind why he did it. So I I just you know just wouldn't bother me one little bit. You just got to move on quickly. I mean, there's all sorts of you know if you start examining everyone's tattoos on every footballer. A rugby player. <laughs> You'd be there a long time for a start. You have a long time and you get into all sorts of areas. So I, I could see why the press wrote about it, but think, okay, it's, it's a one-day story, move on quickly. Yeah, right. um, but they've got such space to fill with this World Cup mm. upon us. This stuff like that gets blown out of all proportion. But he's a great player. I wish him well. This should make no difference whatsoever. 
And they just got to move on quickly and stop talking about it. And uh, yeah, to me, it was a complete non-story. Did, did you find that there was a lot of pressure on your players? Or did you feel in rugby you're, you're slightly more under the radar than in football? Like, were you able to go into 2003 um, without the press on your back? Or did, did you feel that pressure? No, he felt that pressure, for, for sure. But I think you, you mentioned... about rugby than it was about... Yeah, but you also know, you mentioned pages. before, I think social media's made a massive yeah. difference. I mean, yeah. social media was just about around in 2003, but it wasn't really. Mm. I mean, it's not that long ago, but there wasn't a the pressure now what's happening in social media and videos and cameras and, and just the whole pressure. But it's all part of the manager's job. We spoke about, you know, Gerard and Lampard. It's part of their job of handling this. Mm. Um, but, but don't think it doesn't make a difference. You know, you can... You know, you just you're just trying to get to a World Cup, and you historically you're trying to put everything in place so there's no distractions. Mm. You know, and you know one of my favourite sayings was always, "How do you want to be remembered?" That was always on the top of every note paper. How do you want to be remembered? You know, and I know how I want to. You be put it on the note paper to the player at the England. Yeah, place. it was one of our That's one of our sayings. Yeah, how do you want to be remembered? And because what I'm trying to say, this will this will be a very short period of life. Do you ever been you know? You want to be remembered as someone who's done something that's daft or stupid that's brought the whole team down, which is totally possible. Mm-hmm. Any of us could do that by just doing something daft. Or do you remember by the person who did everything humanly possible to get themselves individually in the right physical, mental shape and the team to perform well? And, you know, and I, I made some mistake. There's nothing wrong with losing as long as you've done everything humanly possible to win. Mm-hmm. Then you can live with yourself mm-hmm. and life will go on. If you fail somewhere, you've, you've, made, you've taken a shortcut or one of the players has let the team down you'll never ever forgive yourself if that's your one moment in time mm. of doing it that, that's and that's where I, I love what happened in 2003 and I make no bones about talking about it because you know you you would I said to Andy Robinson the coaches is there anything more we could have done you know before the results came through and, and deep down the answer was no there wasn't you know mm. we, we kind of we'd thrown everything the players were awesome yeah I can't speak high enough of every single one of them not a single player didn't throw the kitchen sink away we had nothing outside of trying to win this next game of rugby that crossed our minds we weren't distracted by anything but that wasn't something we didn't work on talk about you know how we worked with everyone's wives and girlfriends and family we just have it all done to make Mm. sure no one got distracted Mm. you know that way you know and it was great going into those games because you just knew that if everyone did their job properly including me especially me including selection tactics there's no reason why we shouldn't win this game and there's no one can beat us they just need someone to let us down, someone to do something stupid, mm. you know, including during the game to get sent off, you know, to not be able to play under pressure was massive. So this was all like the coaching was about how you play under pressure, how you do all this stuff. And it was an amazing time. And so they just glad to get through the whole thing. And this is what Southgate's got to deliver, you know, in the next few weeks, you know, can we really play under pressure? No distractions. And you hope the media sort of supports him in a way and doesn't get sidetracked on stuff that's really non-stories. Mm. Mm. Sorry to ask you the question. Because no, I, 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 was, I was adding to it. I was adding to the non-story by asking you. But um, what was the difference between 1999 and 2003? Was it this sort of weeding out of distractions or, or, yeah, or, or just, people? Just, or? Just, the, the 99, I've been doing the job less than two years. Um, deep down, I, deep down, didn't... Yeah, I was always saying the right things, we're going to win the World Cup and all the things you've got to say. Deep down, did I think we're good enough? No. Um, we just weren't enough experienced. I wasn't experienced enough. The players weren't experienced enough. And we, we were certainly way behind in terms of the real fundamentals. And our fitness was nowhere near uh, good enough to play the game the way I wanted to play. Um, you know, at the time, 
you, you get beat in the in the quarterfinal in Paris by the South Africans, and you're absolutely lambasted by the press. You you you, know, you think you, you you can't. I can't even explain how bad it is to anybody who's not been through it. Hence, I can totally feel for Stuart Lancaster and these guys who've who've been through this um, real big loss because it is just you can't be described. That's what I'm saying. You know, sport is not a business. It's it's bigger than that. You you it's just with you. You can't go anywhere. Every you walk to the local shops, you think everyone's looking at you, and they're not. But you think they are, and it's it's just this massive weight. So you you kind of kind of got through that, and then I somehow survived because a lot of people were after my head. So you know, big thank you to Francis Barron, the chief executive, Frank Cotton, especially who was on the board. They said no, we think he's doing the right things despite losing the quarterfinals. So I keep my job, and that made me. I was pretty focused anyway, to be to be honest. But that just, if I could, doubled my focus, saying right, there will be no shortcuts, there will be no distractions, no matter what player it is, he is going to go if they're not. 100% going to do it the way that the best for the team and, and I, I kind of changed because that kind of okay got to, got out of jail that one I've got one chance of this now I've got four years and that's what happened and we never looked back and so I think looking back losing in 99 was probably the, the you know probably the best thing could have happened to us at the time you hate it you, you can never plan to lose and think this will be good it's horrible horrible and that's why you kind of love coaching and hate coaching because it's just it's just all encompassing. But you kind of survive it, and then we never look back from that. I made all the right decisions. We made a few changes with certain things, players, and we never looked back. And that was just its history. We arrived the next World Cup, absolutely favourite to win it. I mean, we were ranked six, I think, in '99, and that was about right. 2003, we're number one ranked team in the world. Favourites tend to win. If, if England were going to the World Cup in football this year, number one ranked team, you expect them to win. Mm. And that's that was the that was the added pressure away because you love that because we've done everything right and we should win this World Cup. It's going to be an upset if we don't. And that was an amazing thing to be um, involved in. You talk a lot about um, your, your love and respect for the players, you know, down to a man every single week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One of them you would, um, <clears throat> no doubt, um, have on that plane again to, to a World Cup. But how did you get to the point where you were able to select 
those who travelled? And how hard was that process? Yeah, the selection of the final, because you only take 30. So the selection of the final 30, that was one of the toughest things. Not for the majority of them, but the last few. The team kind of picked itself by that stage. But, you know, there was three, four players that even now I kind of get quite, you know, Graham Roundtree, top of the list, who didn't go. Um, Yeah, Simon Shaw didn't go. Austin Healy didn't didn't go. So these are the sort of players you kind of... Uh... You're not so bothered about Austin though, right? No, oh, I am. I'm only joking, I'm only joking. But everybody always teases Austin and I feel sorry for him because in a way his yeah. versatility was his undoing. He was so good at so many different positions. It's almost like he didn't cement himself in one. The top yeah. list would be great. The, the one player I really, really um, possibly think I should have got that wrong was, was, was Roundtree, the prop. Mm. I mean, Roundtree was ever-present. But it just, I won't go through all the details. I had to take four props or five props. If I was going to take five props, he was going to go. If I was going to take four, he wasn't. But that meant somebody else would have missed out in the back row. Would have been someone else wouldn't have gone. So I had a lot of debate about it. And at the end of the day, you know, I won't go through the technicalities of loose head and tight head, but he couldn't go. That phone conversation was the hardest phone call I've ever had to make in my life. And even now, I don't feel good about it because deep down, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure I was right. The others, the others are 100%. They were yeah. unlucky. At least if you've got strength in your convictions, you yeah. can rest easy at yeah. night. But if there's an element of doubt in your that mind... Was, that was the one, and, it was, and it's your call. Mm-hmm. You know, and Graham Roundtree will... You know, I don't blame him. I'd have been the same thing. He'll go to his, he'll go to his grave going, you know... Should have been there. Should have been, been in that team. And, mm-hmm. you know, every now and then I hear him... <laughs> I heard him once, he was interviewed on the radio when he was coaching Quinns or somewhere, and someone said, well, you know, did you feel that way during the World Cup? And he said... I didn't go to the World Cup, <laughs> and the guy didn't. Re- the guy had forgotten because everyone thought he was in the World Cup team. And I listened to, oh no! And I and I, and I see him now. And he's great because he's a good, he's an amazing guy, and we have a firm shake of hands and a hug. But deep down, I've never been able to really re talk to him yeah. since that since that day. So this stuff is serious, serious stuff. You're, you're making big decisions, and I don't. Take, I don't. I'll tell you, people's yeah. lives yeah. completely and utterly. Yeah. People's lives have actually uh, changed on those. And those decisions, and it's it's not easy. You know, Simon Shaw, the same thing. You know, that these are these are these are players who, on any other time, would have been in the team. But you've got to make those calls. You know, you take thirty, mm. and you got to you got to move on. And you kind of live with yourself because I guess we won the World Cup. But if we'd lost the World Cup and we'd not scrimmaged well, I'd have sort of made a mistake with not taking Graham. And um, but he's a coach now. He'll he'll know himself how hard it is because he's got to pick teams, mm. and you'll know it's not as it's not as straightforward as people may think. What is that great anecdote that I heard about um, going down to the Marines and you being given a little list? Yeah, it wasn't an anecdote. We went um, just before the World Cup in '99. We went down to the train with the Royal Marines, uh, which I loved because, uh, and I was totally comfortable with these guys because I was from a service family, spent my whole life in, in mm. the in the military. So I went down to see the Marines and said I wanted to you know, do all this uh, sort of team building stuff, and they were just amazing. Um, when I say team building stuff, when we were on seeking helicopters, they just threw the kitchen sink at this to actually try and get the team really working, you know, how to handle pressure mainly was my big brief to them. But we had like six days down there. And after two nights, there was a guy called Brigadier Pillar. He was the boss there. He had set this all up and they were fantastic. He, he started, you know, you and me need to go out for a, for a beer. So it's great. So so the second night we went out for a beer. Drinking with a Marine. I mean, that's drinking with brave. Marine. So we went out with uh, the, the Brigadier. He was the boss. <laughs> And we just sat and had a quiet beer in the local pub and he just took out this bit of paper. And um, there was a 
few names on this bit of paper. And I looked at his name from the England players. And he just said to me, he looked at me and he said, these guys wouldn't make Royal Marines. And I said, well, what are you on about? And I looked at the names. I obviously never repeat who the names are. But he said, they wouldn't make Royal Marines. And, I, and he said, I didn't tell you this. You know, we behind the scenes have been monitoring all the conversations, everything that's been going on, all this sort of stuff. And that's just thought I'd give you that list of players. And I looked at this list. And if someone honestly had said to me, you know, have all the people you don't quite kind of, what's the word, trust or you don't try to, yeah, it was pretty, it was accurate. Really? 100% accurate. Really? So within 24 hours, 48 hours, they'd found out. Because when you think about the Marines are the ultimate selectors. Yeah. Because they make, a lot of their, their selection is self-selection. In other words, you don't get, you don't get on the helicopter unless all your colleagues in the Marines trust you because they know more than anybody else. You get one weak link in your team. He can bring down the whole team. You, yeah. you don't come back from your trip on the helicopter. And that was a real... I didn't take any... I didn't take any notice of it. It didn't, didn't affect my selection at all for that World Cup in 99. But looking back post-99, they were right. They were absolutely spot, spot on. And I learned a big lesson because I just said, you, you got, you've got to toughen up on selection. You've got to go with what you're seeing, what your gut feeling was, because the list was accurate. And I could see it. And we didn't, we didn't have a great World Cup. We didn't play very well, but the team wasn't as one. And then you look at 44 years later, it was, you know, we'd, we'd gone to see the Marines there. He would have gone, every single one of those players will be a Royal Marine. Trust every single one of them, because I knew them of what they were doing. So it was a great, great moment. And it was yeah. a big, big lesson for me, because going, you know, especially when I survived and you keep your job going, right, I'm just going to not take any, you know, n no shortcuts. Going to absolutely pick the strongest team. If any player doesn't want to, come on this trip and, and really put it in, you know, they can go. That's what happened. So I reckon if I sit down and compare the squads from 99 and 2003, bar retirements, no, we could probably work, work it out. out. No, you won't work it out. Come on. No, you I won't might work give it, it a go. Out. You won't work it out. I bet there's people listening now who are busily Googling, trying to work it out. Um, so okay, what are your, what are your uh, feelings on the, the current state of English rugby? Oh, no, really, really good. There's a bit of a spat going on at the moment and... Um, hasn't been a good Six Nations and, you know, the, the Barbarians game. But, yeah, I, I just look at the players and, you know, end of the day, um, yeah, England England is a quite a complex business to run because the players are all contracted to their clubs. There's a lot of personalities involved and it's, it's, a, it's something that if you do successfully, you should get a big pat on the back because it's not, it's not an easy thing. It's not like running a football team where you've got everyone in the room same with what Gareth Southgate's doing now. It's quite challenging. So there's there's a lot going on. Um, you know, I'm a big kind of fan of Eddie. I like Eddie. I think he's been a good choice. But I, I just think my personal views are just last, since the start of the year, they just got a bit distracted. And I can fully understand that. And that's why I keep saying to everyone, I can, it's, that's what I think's happened. But I can understand it. Because at one point, I think, start of the year, they would play 23-1-22. The win-loss record was unbelievable. It was almost too good. It was kind of almost unreal. And I just think they started to, I was not believe their own publicity, but when you win 22 out of 23, you start to think you're invincible. Mm. And I think you start maybe just doing things that maybe you wouldn't normally done mm. two years prior to that. Like what? Like, like what? Um, I could give you loads of examples. Um, what, distracted by the fame or by just, your own self-importance? Just by, by, just by distracted where... You know, if I use the, the the interesting thing with Eddie, and he and I've met him since, so I've told him this. So it's nothing talking out of school. You know, when he got into that sort of um, 
uh, you know, got into some issues with the guys on the train after, oh, yeah, you know, yeah, you got yeah. into sort of yeah. into stuff. Well, the big story was Eddie Jones had a sort of a bit of problem with a few of the Scottish fans on the in Manchester um, station on the Sunday after playing Scotland. Um, so no one picked this up, but for me, who if you're in the job, my first question, what's he doing in Manchester on a Sunday morning after you played Scotland? So when you think about it, England played Scotland Saturday night, mm. five o'clock kickoff, so you would have finished at seven. All I know is the next day in charge of the international team, that is a busy day, mm. especially if you've lost the game. That is a massive game the next day with the media, with the players, with injuries. It's a huge day. And Eddie had accepted an invitation to go and watch Chelsea Man United at Old Trafford with Sir Alex Ferguson. So even that, I'm looking in going, that's how he's been distracted because mm-hmm. he's assuming we're going to beat Scotland. I've got an invite to go, yes, I can go down, leave the team. And that's, so those things, just all those little things start to add up. And that's what I mean by di- distracted. It's so easy to get distracted, you know, going off, doing dinners, speaking at stuff, players doing too much stuff outside. of mm-hmm. It can happen so easily. It's almost like we've done it. Well, they've done nothing. You know, you've won 22 out of 23, but, you know, the, the first two years after World Cup are always rebuilding. Everyone's at their weakest. Mm. The two years leading into World Cup, every team gets stronger. Um, you know, in, 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 in January, a lot of the team, including Eddie, was talking about the All Blacks game in November. And I'm going, hang on, guys. <laughs> That's in November. Mm. You've got Six Nations. You've got to play Wales. You've got to play Ireland, especially. Mm. You've got France. You've got Scotland and the towns. You know, I'm very clear about this. You know, and, I've, and again, I've said this to Eddie. The only thing, it's absolutely part of our team rule. If anybody spoke about anything apart from the next game, we're going to have a real problem, mm. you know, because we're, we're with me. Because you can ask me about World Cups, about all that. I guess all I speak about is our next game. And if we're playing S- Scotland, wherever it was, is our next game. That's, I'll speak about Scotland, but I'll speak about no other game. And if you take that mantra in, just the next game, next game, next game. One day, the next game, maybe the World Cup final. Then we'll speak. But until then, don't get, I won't, I'm not going to be distracted because that's the only thing I want to talk about. And it's very simple stuff. We all agreed it, and no one ever didn't do that. Mm. And it's such a simple thing. But suddenly in January, we're talking about, you know, we're number two in the world. It's all about beating the All Blacks in November and becoming number one in the world. <laughs> Guys, whoa, what are you doing? But I don't think there's anyone at Twickenham who can sit down with Eddie and go, hang on, what are you doing? And they just got distracted. Mm. And I think getting a sort of a real wake-up call in the Six Nations, I think history will show that's a bit like us losing in the World Cup in, in the World Cup in ninety nine, I think that'll be the real wake up call and the shaking you need. And I think the will go well against Africa because um be, because they've been in a, they're in a corner now and they've and it's not they've not got great players, you know. I think they've they've got some players that seriously for the first time the match up two thousand and three, you know, Farrell, Mario Tojo, the Vinopola brothers, Daly, these are really top players. So you've you've probably now got at least five, six truly world-class players who arguably were getting most teams in the world and that's what you need and you get a coach and I think Eddie is a good coach and I just think he just just got a bit distracted um, but I think he's now not distracted and he's got to stop all this you know you're reading today about squabbles with the owners about injuries you've just got to get that off the you've got to get everybody back on the next game yeah I was going to ask you about that so you're obviously talking about the Bath owner and some pretty big injuries happening on England's time on on Eddie's time does an England coach have a, a sense of responsibility to, to club rugby so that send them back in one piece I and mean, because you know we're talking about career threatening 
injuries. Yeah. It's, a, a, is they're training too tough, and B, should Eddie... Is it a respect thing? Does, does he need to actually think about their, their lives outside of England rugby a bit more? The answer is I, I don't think... You know, there's, there's no way anyone's gone into a training session trying to get a player injured, mm. whatever. These these things do actually happen. But it doesn't need the club owner um, to actually come in, Bruce Craig, in instance, to come in and have to sort of stamp his feet. And I can understand totally why Bruce Craig is really fed up. Mm. If I was the owner of a club, if I was a club coach, to have my star players injured in England training sessions, I'm, that's going to send me off the deep end. So I'm not going to be happy. So I, I can understand all the emotion coming out of the clubs. And I totally understand that. And I can totally agree with that. But also from an England point of view, there should be a lot of emotion coming from the England RFU going, guys, we need our strongest team to play for England. You can't be denting the players. Mm. You know, you know. It's one of my favourite lines. It's amazing how good a coach I became when I got a fully fully strength team. With teams at full strength, no injuries. It's amazing how good a coach you become. <laughs> yeah. You start denting players in training, yeah. you don't get paid to, you know, have but great again, you training You can't go sessions. into a training session with, with that at the back of your mind, can you? But this, you know, I had a guy called Dave Redden who I think you you would know. Dave Dave was the best I've ever come across, and I've worked with all Olympic sports. Dave Redden was our, you know, strength and conditioning, fitness. This doesn't really explain what he what he did. His number one thing to me was he he was on top of every individual player. And there was days an athlete came to me and saying, right, these guys we need to give them a beasting today. They need a real serious session. These guys shouldn't train. These guys shouldn't train because this and and he was just. He was just a genius. And, you know, I would, without exception, I'd always go with him. I'd question it a few times because, mm. you know, we may have, it could be a Wednesday afternoon, we've got a big game on Saturday, and he's coming to say, these two guys shouldn't train. Now, we want, we want to train, I want to train. Mm. But I always went with him. I always went with him. And he, because I knew he was, he was making a decision not, because he's going to say, well, let's not train because mm. we're going to stay mm. fit for Saturday. Mm. But I'd rather not train somebody and put somebody else into training their position than even risk any injuries. And he was just, you know, he did all these tests on them, you know, not only the physical tests, but, you know, just the physiological tests and when they're a bit low. And he worked really well with every club um, equivalent because there's a club strength conditioning. And we, we made it clear. We, we, and I, I can't recall denting a player ever in an England training session. And we trained hard, but we'd also trained for small bursts and we didn't do anything that they weren't used to doing. Mm. So we wouldn't want to do anything that wasn't part of what you'd expect to do in an England training camp because you know we've got the star players you need them fit for Saturday mm. and um, I remember one of my just to sort of sum this up we used to um, well, I tried once this was quite an amusing conversation with Wilkinson because you've got your star guy and we're going to go on a full on training session and David said something to me and, I'd, and he said about Johnny and I said okay so I went up to Wilkinson and I said to him and I put him in a, in a yellow vest so I put, you know we were training and whatever so I put a yellow vest on him and I said to the whole team, you know, if you've got a yellow vest on, you can't tackle them. And I've literally got all the Wilkinson and eyeballed him and said, you don't go into any contact, you any rocks, you just, just, just play the playmaker, just move the ball around. And he looked at me, yeah, 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 yeah. So literally, we started off, I turned my back, the yellow vest has gone off. <laughs> he's chucked on the floor, he's gone and smashed somebody. It was a full-on contact session. And, he's, and that sums him up, but also it's, yeah. it's kind of a weakness as well because... He's the ultimate team person. He didn't want to be singled out having a yellow vest. And my only mistake was I should have put two or three people in yellow vests. So he didn't feel out on his own, but he felt a bit. But I've just gone up to him and I would just laugh, to be fair. But I you know, got him off the pitch then. I just subbed him off completely so he couldn't play. 
but he just wrote, wrote it down. So yeah, it's training's training, but. So how is this going to play out then between Eddie and the? the yeah, not, not good. I don't like. I don't like. It's what I call a distraction. Again, yeah. we, we, you know, with the with a week of a test match, we play South Africa, and we're, we're talking about a spat between the England coach and the and the owner. We're really, the, you know, they're both they're both right. Eddie's right. You can't have people, and I think no one's telling him how to, to run his coaching sessions. But they are. There's been a lot of injuries now, mm-hmm. and I think it is too many. And these are serious injuries. He's damaging his own cause as well as the club's. He's to- that's what I'm saying. He's, he's totally, and he's also damaging his, you know, he's, he is damaging his own cause because he's a good, good player he's losing. And uh, I don't know what's going on training, so I can't mm-hmm. comment on that. All I'm saying is you, you've got to be really careful and, and just say, you know, mm-hmm. you've got your full strength team. England, England will beat most teams if they're fully fit and loaded. Yeah. But, you know, heaven only knows if they lost, say, Farrell, the loss to him would be huge. Mm-hmm. Huge. So... Mm-hmm. So you've got to be careful, but I just don't like the spats between the clubs and the RFU because yeah. you kind of think you've, it's kind of childish. You think you've moved on from that. That's what mm-hmm. I kind of went through all those years ago. We kind of, but even then, we never really fell out. We, we had our differences, but mm-hmm. we, we kind of got the job done, but it never became personal. And yeah, I mean, I, we, we were sort of set in Formula One the minute it goes public, it becomes a problem because it's damaging for, for all parties if it, if it does. And I guess, yeah. I guess that's the issue. Yeah, and these are tough guys. And yeah, Bruce Craig is an absolute winner. He's a winner in, in business. He's, 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 he's not going to be pushed around by the RFU or, or Eddie. Um, so mm-hmm. it wasn't the brightest thing to do. And, you know, I, and, and even, even now, you know, looking back, you know, Nigel Ray from Saracens, you know, I had some great chats with him at the time, but he, he now sponsors some of my skiers. He's, I've never, I've never fell out with these guys. with yeah. different opinions, but yeah. I could see it from their point of view. Mm. And I was just making sure, guys, I am not going to dent a player. Mm. If we re-dent a player, it's a real freak. Mm. It's something, you know. But also, we've got to train, and we've got to train properly, and we've got to train hard, and all this sort of stuff. I go back to Dave Red, and Dave was brilliant because he was looking in. He was absolutely on top of this, and he was just mm. coming eyeball me, and we had these. Yeah, so grown up conversations and, and the players didn't like being taken out of training like the side of Wilkinson mm-hmm. you take a player out of training why are you taking me out of training why are you taking me out of training I said doesn't matter I'm taking you out of training um, protecting you from yourself yeah, well, yeah that's a great line that's what, that's what it kind of was because I just need you fit for Saturday you know yeah. we'll be judged on Saturday not yeah. on Wednesday Thursday but if you keep picking up injuries it's going gonna, it's gonna to yeah. escalate this I think it's every fan's worst nightmare to read that their favourite player you know talisman has been injured in training. You're like, no, yeah, this yeah, can't exactly. be happening. Um, I read recently that you didn't approve of the selection of Brad Shields. Um, so for anyone listening, he, he's he's English, but he's got Kiwi parents. No, the other way around. He's grown up in New Zealand, but he's got English parents. So he does qualify to play for England. But what, what's your issue with um, Eddie going for him for this tour? It was, it was not. It's actually the opposite. My my view on selecting for England is is. Um, I'm the England coach, which I've been. Um, in my job description, I want to pick anybody who qualifies for England. Doesn't matter where they are from, mm-hmm. they qualify from England, they're able to play. My big issue is, you know, Chris Ashton, uh, for example, um, is playing down in Toulon mm-hmm. uh, on, on the wing. He's not allowed to be picked because he's playing in Toulon so we've got a guy in New Zealand who's hardly ever been to England never played in the Premiership we can't pick him you try and explain that to the outside person why an English person who's played who's played so many times and to me should be in the team now Chris Aston but he's playing in Toulon who's a short flight away but we're picking a guy who's never played a single Premiership game so I think it's good Brad Shields is playing to be honest but I'm saying you know, because what you don't want is also creating any excuses you don't want people in the dressing room thinking 
well, I'm in the team. Would I be in the team if Chris Ashton was available? Would I be in the team if Brad Shields was available? You've got to take that all away. You've got to know every single person, you are the best person who's qualified for England. That's why I'm picking you. Mm. And then not have a whole list of people who I can't pick him. And also it gives an excuse for the coach. You don't want to give the coach any get-out-of-jail card. I don't want Jones saying, well, I would have picked him, but I'm not allowed to because the rules between the Premiership and the RFU. So I just think these rules are nonsense. And so it's not a case of being anti-Brad Shields. It's a case of saying, what, what really annoys me is we can't pick Ashton, who plays in France. We, we can pick a guy who plays in New Zealand. That just, just logically is just crazy. And I, I just want to pick English. Everyone, I'm the England coach. I've got to, I can pick anyone I like around the world. And leave it up to me. That's my job. Also, presumably, logistics aren't great to come all the way around from New Zealand to then go down to South Africa. You know, well, he's coming over to be fair. He's coming over to play for Was. You know, he's got a, he's got a, he's going to go on a tour now. I, I just think it this looks mm. wrong. Right. Um, but you know, I, I don't think we're we're blessed with a lot of mm. fit players at the moment in that position. So he's got every chance of going straight into the test team against South Africa, which again, I'll just go. I've got nothing wrong with that. If he's qualified, pick him. I agree with that. But he hasn't bedded in with the players. But that's up to, that's up to, yeah. that's the culture you've got to create, and that's why you, as a coach, either fits you or it doesn't fit with you. Um, but you don't want any excuses and say, well, you know, I couldn't pick him because he was, you know, playing in Toulon or playing in New Zealand, and that's my point. And and I, I can't think. Well, there wasn't there wasn't a single player I didn't pick, who I, I was picking from everyone who's qualified for England in the world, you know, including myself. I was still hoping I could make a comeback one day. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of um, Peter Crouch's. Did you see that on um, Twitter yesterday? Yeah. Peter Crouch took this amazing free kick in his garden and just put, Gareth, I'm still available. Still available. Haven't booked my holiday yet. <laughs> no, you never retire. You never give up. Never no. give up. Um, just to Formula One for a second, if you'll indulge me. I heard that you did come pretty close to working in our great sport. I want to know why you not, because we would have loved to have had you. And uh, yes. and just how kind of realistic was it? Oh, it was very realistic. I, um, after the World Cup, uh, Ron Dennis uh, called me. I obviously knew who Ron Dennis was. Um, went down to his amazing offices in Woking, yeah, wherever, you know, cool. where McLaren was. So I went down to see him and, you know, just an amazing guy. Showed me all around, you know, McLaren. But I... I and you know, I was wondering why he wanted to see me really, but but I was, you know, we just won the World Cup, so I could okay, fine. He wanted to talk to me about the whole thing. Then he literally rang me back. He's like, "I want you, to, I want to meet you again. I really enjoyed our meeting. Um, I'm going to create a like a performance director role, and um, I'd like you to consider it." I said, well, "What do you mean by performance director?" He said, "Well, literally, you know, we've got all these amazing engineers looking after the car. But I want to take, you know, your your role be to coach the drivers basically and to get them into prime condition." blah 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 and I think it'd be a great addition to our team and so I then sent Jane down to see him because I thought he was winding me up so I sent Jane my wife down to actually have a chat with him and he and he and he you know he, he was serious he was a serious serious job offer to, to actually this was like January after winning the World Cup and um, so January 2004 2004 yeah right. uh, whenever, anyway not long after the World Cup it was January February and um, but it was what we spoke about before I mean, I love watching Formula One on, on, on telly. Am I passionate about Formula One? No. It's not this kind of, I don't wake up every day thinking about Formula One and McLaren and Mercedes and Red Bull. It was, I love the sport. I love all sports. And I, could, and, and, it, and I think it's a great, great sport. But am I passionate about it? No, because I'd, I'd, be not, I'd be doing it for a job and a paycheck as opposed to something I'm passionate about. So that was the only reason. 
and um, and he actually invited me to well, he invited Jane and myself to to go on his private jet to uh, it was there was a big race it was in I think it was in Rio uh, there's a in Sao Paulo in in Brazil and we were going to fly on his private jet oh, to Sao Paulo you've just gone for that alone and I was great. it was what time of year would that have been so that would have been sort of October November. Does that sound about right? No, it can't have been because it would have been no, that was a afterwards. long time. It must have been afterwards. But anyway, we're invited down to his, his, on, his, on his plane to go and watch this it's race. At the end of the season, somewhere. Yeah. Anyway, it might, it, was, it might be South America somewhere anyway. But, you know, and I, I, and I looked at the, and I was like, <laughs> Leicester were playing Bath. And I'm going, <laughs> you know, really Leicester playing Bath is yeah. just about to, just about to play, try and pick a team to play for England. It was Leicester Bath or something. Now I'm in seeing in Rio de Janeiro, wherever I was, or Sao Paulo with, with Ron Dennis. It wasn't going to go down too well. So I just said, no, I can't make it. I've got Leicester Bath to go and watch. So, so that, was, that was the end of my Formula One career. But he was great. I love Ron Dennis. And I thought, he, another guy who's, you know, whatever people think about him. To me, he was what he did with the Claren then was amazing. Because yeah. I think Hamilton was with him. Um, he was yeah, a very young boy there, anyway. Yeah. So, the, all the, so all these young kids were there. So, but it was great, you know. But yeah, we went down to to see Ron Dennis down there and I'm still close to you know, it's, it's great because in with the Olympic role we did a lot with McLaren Technologies mm. um, I've been speaking to Toto Wolf at uh, Mercedes recently about helping us on a, a ski project so, been, so I just love going down it's just the detail Natalie I mean, you, you, I mean if we're brutally honest all professional sports just follow you know, we kind of hold on to the, the coattails of Formula 1 because their detail is just fantastic and I love all this and the what they go through when you when you go to you know Mercedes and sort of twelve hundred people sort of building two cars for two drivers, it's just fantastic. And that's what I think professional sports all about. And that's why it is a great great sport, and I love it. But it's not my kind of passion. So, uh, what is that passion now? Where are you channeling um, all your energy, enthusiasm? Yeah, well, the, the main the main the main thing, a couple of business things, but the main thing on sport, we're building this uh, ski academy in in. Uh, the south of France, which again is a great project for me. I've been involved with it for three years now. I've kept it all pretty quiet. But it's an international ski ski academy, so it's not just for British kids; it's for international kids. And we started building it about a year ago. It'll be finished in twenty uh, September twenty nineteen, and it's going to be for about one hundred and twenty young young kids. So it's kind of you know I'll be I've come down a level in terms of age, but I'll be you know I'm I'm the performance director for this ski ski academy. So I'm in charge of the whole ski performance in terms of hiring the coaches, putting the whole thing in place. And it's been, it's been fantastic because, A, it's, um, it's international, uh, working closely with the French especially, you've been brilliant because this is a serious build and we've been building this whole... Uh, but the, the simple thing is we want it to be the best ski academy in the world. So we've, you know, we think we know what we're, what, we, what we're doing, but I want it to be international. I want the class to be full of French kids, British kids, American, Indian, Chinese. And that's, what I think, the, you know, the real real fun thing about doing this and, and to see whether we can get a, someone down the hill faster than anybody else and so you'll measure that success by olympic medals yeah basically yeah i mean we'll, we'll yeah that's why it's a long-term project we're starting off we've got um 12 kids on the program now as, as we're building physically building this building we've got 12 kids in teams living in a, in a chalet these are currently you know and they're mixed boys and girls they're 13 14 and we'll you know the program will you know, it's like a ten-year cycle, really, to before we'll see real, real success. But yeah, do the the you know, it's not just Olympic games. You know, but can we get you know in all the in all the world events, all the world championships? Can we can we do something special in Olympic skiing? You know, hence again, 
thinking it back to you, you know, your, I say your sport, Formula One. Yeah, my sport, I you am. Know, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> it's really you know, my, my, you know, when I've spoken to other people in Formula One, I just want to get this person down the hill faster and safer than anybody else. Yeah. You know, and the safety is a big, big thing mm. because that's why I think, you know, touch wood of Formula One, they've really gone mm. last massive steps forward in the safety mm. and you know I, I watch these skiers I go to these you know the Olympic Games and all these world championships and uh, these amazing ski events but these some of the some of the some of the crashes you know they're just brave these mm. kids throw themselves down the mountain but sometimes they fly off the end you know and, and they get seriously injured mm. so you know part of my role is to can we make them go faster and safer and that's the key thing which I think you can do mm. and we're going to put a huge amount of investment in um, to actually try and make that happen, you know. So we want to create real elite skiers, but we want them down the hill in one piece, mm. and not, 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 not otherwise. And so there are processes in Formula One that you can learn through Toto that you can apply to this. Well, I'm hoping so. Yeah, we've, we've, uh, he's agreed to help us. We just say, say process. We're just going to use, you know, one or two of their engineers to start to work with our coaches and. Mm. You know, one of the first things he told me, because he's an Austrian, he's a great, great guy, you know, a huge amount of respect for this bloke. Um, but he loves, he loves his skiing, because he's, 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 he's Austrian. But he said, you know, Formula One, and I, I don't understand Formula One, um, but he said, it's not straight line speed, it's how fast, you come out, how fast you come out the turns. That's the whole thing. And he said, that's skiing, you know, it's not a case of you're not going, to, you know, it's not a straight line speed, it's how you fast. And he said, so... You know, based on that one fact alone, we'll, we'll do our best to kind of help you. So he's not he's, all he's I say all he's doing, but it's for us. It's a great step forward to be able to actually work with somebody who's an engineer in Formula One, mm. who's you know a proper engineer who kind of understands skiing. For them to now work with our coaches and just to, even our physical our physical trainers. You know, what is the right body shape composition in terms of you know how do we train this body to to withstand? Obviously, the equipment. You know, skis on snow is no different than tires on tarmac. You know, but yeah, it's, it's obviously different, but it's not that much different when you think about it. We, 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 it's a speed event. It's it's safe. It's and lots of turns. And could, can you come out the turns faster than anybody else? But try to stand your feet is a secret to it. So it's a great project for me to be involved in. So I'm really delighted. I've been involved in it for quite a long time now, since its in, since its inception. And the the French have been brilliant because the. The people in team, the, the French Ski Federation is run by a guy called Michel Vion. These guys have been so supportive of what we're doing because it's international, because, you know, I don't care what, who wins a gold medal as long as it's come through our ski academy. If it's a French kid, an American kid, they'll, they'll get as big a hug with me as it's a British kid. That's very cool. Very cool indeed. Right, just to bring it back to you to finish on, um, the series of questions, just to delve a bit deeper into understanding what goes on be between the ears with you. Um, Advice that you'd give to your younger self? Advice I'd give to my younger self, um, just I, I wish I'd um, uh, written a lot more things down you know, in terms of, you know, I've been exposed to you know, amazing um, coaching, especially in, in rugby and all sports, but most of it's kind of, you know, at the time I never wrote it all down. And I would say that to, you know, to my younger self, I've said to people now, I've said to every young athlete, Write it down, write it down, study it, study it, study it. Don't lose this because, you know, some of these um, thoughts and ideas from these brilliant people, you know, you can't remember it all. So write it all down, somehow keep it. So I wish I just kept a lot more information and, you know, because I, I was very lucky, certainly in rugby. I, you know, was one, one, you know, I had three great coaches, one, one you know, Jim Greenwood, Chalky White, and a guy called Earl Curtin was my first coach at Harlequins at 18. He was my first proper coach and he was an all-black. 
great dentist, but just a great, great coach. And he goes, where's this kid come from? You know, but, but he showed me so much about what he did. I just wish I'd written it all down and kept it all. That's cool. And um, defining moments. I mean, the easy one, I suppose, would be winning the World Cup. But, but was there something else that you think was a bit of a sliding doors moment for you? In terms of rugby? Well, in terms of life. Oh, I just, I've had lots of, um, I say to my kids, Natalie, I've never, I've never planned my career. And I can generally say that I've, I've never, ever said this is, this is the plan. My career's sort of gone in eight, nine year cycles. Things have happened. This sliding door, whatever you, you call it. Um, things have happened. Like even the game going professional, I never saw that. Mm. Just went professional. Literally within weeks, I've been offered the first full-time rugby job and I'm running a successful business. And so do you do it? Do you not do it? Do you take the risk? All, all those things happen, you know, um, London winning the Olympic Games through, you know, Seb Coe and, and these, these amazing people. Then I get off with the job as director of sport for Team GB. So things have just happened and I've been either lucky enough or kind of astute enough to make the right the right calls. During those eight, nine year periods, I've done some really crazy things that I probably shouldn't, you know, shouldn't, have, shouldn't have done. But the actual key changes looking back I think I'm quite pleased that I didn't kind of bottle the the chance of doing something where maybe the easier option was not to do something where mm. I've, I've done it and made the right the right the right calls mm. and my final question what keeps you awake at night what keeps me awake like probably I've, I've got this thing at the moment which is is on is on golf I've kind of um it's the one sport I can still play and I've now decided to take it seriously so um, I kind of, you know, been coached properly, writing it all down. My handicap's down to six, and it's coming impressive. and coming down. Yeah, well, I'm trying to get it down lower. So that's what keeps me like. Cause I can, I can, because I'm now to a fault writing everything down. You know, and I have this thing about what I call uh, winning moves, and winning the winning moves are just sort of the key coaching points. And I think in a game like a game like a sport like golf, uh, amateurs like me, we, you, you you don't we don't. It's not been taught properly. We we don't learn the technical side of golf really as much as we should do. And I listen to the golf commentators on TV and they talk about flair and all this stuff. I'm saying, I disagree with that totally and utterly. It's nothing to do with flair. Golf is to do with absolute. It's one sport that's totally technique. You know, and if you can get your technique right as an amateur player, you'll, you'll be fine. And all these world's best players, the Roy McIlroy's, they've been through that as kids. They've learned the technique. So then when they're their age, you can talk about flair and all this stuff. But when you're an amateur, unless you get set up properly to the ball and get your basics right, you're late, well, you've got no chance. So it's understanding and relearning these things. So I, I generally, every shot I can think of, from, and why golf's so great, you know, from a driver to a putter, the techniques are completely light years away. But can you, what, what, are your, what are your winning moves? What are the six key things? If you do those six key things right, you'll putt fine. If you do those six key things right, you'll hit the ball driver fine. And there's no logical reason in golf why you can't hit the ball down the middle because the ball stood still. It's not moving. So you've got to hit it in a straight line. So my logic is is this should be possible. So I'm really trying to put a huge amount of emphasis on my on my on my golf game. And and the great thing about it is that even that creates great pressure because you can't hide. You can't I can't bullshit anyone about how good a golfer I'm or not because you can watch me play. You know, and you can't you can't bullshit your uh, can I say that word? Sorry, you, you can't. You, you, you can't. Whatever your handicap, because that, that's the game. But my, my handicap's coming down. Working with a great coach called Dan Grieve, who's the head coach at Woburn, and you know we're getting quite excited about it. And I want to just prove by using a process and a method that's not a lot different from where I coach the rugby team. 
that you can do it in a in a sport like golf, which is one of the most pressurized games mm. you can think of because even getting on that first tee with your mates on a Saturday morning, your heart starts fluttering a bit because <laughs> somebody somebody wants to see you fail, and um, you can't hide from it. And but I I think there's a different way of teaching it for for, for amateurs like me who generally want to get better at a, at a sport. You've got to be able to practice it a bit, but you've got to you've got to know what you're practicing. That's what I'm trying to say. So that generally does. I, I lie awake now. Can I rehearse? Can I think about what the, what these points are? Quite sad, really. <laughs> Do you know, all I can say is poor Jane. <laughs> poor Jane. No. Yes, poor Jane. So, uh, she's kind of used to it for me a long time, so yeah. she's used to it. So, Great stuff. Right, I'm going to go and give uh, Sally and Ronnie some food. <laughs> They've been lovely company. They're both asleep now. They're very calm. <laughs> Clive, it's been a pleasure. Thank Thanks, you so Clive. much. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope your equipment's worth this time. So do I. Bloody hell. <laughs> Could be the third time back. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.